It has been written that Helen of Troy possessed the face that launched a thousand ships. Well, may I introduce you to Ellen Marcy McClellan, the wife of Union Major General George Brenton McClellan, who launched thousands of words. Her husband wrote to her daily, and through his letters we know so very much, far more than perhaps he ever intended for us to know. Excerpts of over 250 of his letters to her were included by George McClellan's literary executor, William C. Prime, in his biographical work, McClellan's Own Story, which was published in 1887, two years after the general's death. Prime wanted to honor McClellan, to tell his side of the story. However, the biographer's work reopened old wounds and damaged forever McClellan's military reputation. This is the story of the brilliant yet controversial young Napoleon, the Union's Little Mac. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there to show that history is indeed a story. It was a Tuesday afternoon, September the 2nd, 1862, and Major General John Pope's defeated Federal Army limped back to the protective defenses of Washington City after yet another whipping at Manassas. The recent rain was gone, and the sun had returned. Enough warmth and drying out that the long serpent-like line of men in blue marched in a cloud of hazy dust. Major General John Pope and another Union general who met defeat at Manassas a year earlier, Irvin McDowell, rode in the lead, side by side. Suddenly, out in the road ahead, a group of horsemen appeared. They rode confidently, the man in front on a great black horse adorned with a bright yellow sash about his waist, erect and dapper in the saddle. That officer rode up to Pope and McDowell and snapped a salute to them. Riding just behind, Brigadier General John Porter Hatch saw the salute and spurred his horse to the scene. He got there just in time to hear that by order of the President of the United States, the man on the black horse was assuming command. Hatch hated Pope. He trotted back a few paces from the trio of officers, and in a loud voice easily heard by both McDowell and Pope shouted, Boys, McClellan is in command of the army again. Three cheers. There was a brief stunned silence. Then a wild yell rose up to the heavens. Hats, caps, and knapsacks were thrown into the air, and the roar cascaded all the way down the long blue line. It was the kind of thing soldiers remembered for the rest of their days. Indeed, in a letter to his wife, George Brenton McClellan penned, Again, I have been called upon to save the country. What he failed to mention was he was back in command only because another had turned it down. In his letter to wife Ellen, whom he lovingly addressed as Nellie, he wrote, I hear them calling out to me as I ride among them. George, don't leave us again. No question the spark he gave was contagious. His men loved him, 
Yet abolitionist and so-called radical Republicans feared his soft stand on slavery. However, within five days, he had the army on the move. By the 13th of September, they were in Frederick, Maryland, which had just spent five days under Confederate occupation. It was there that day that Lee's General Order 191 was found, the famous Lost Order. With knowledge of Lee's every move in this, his first invasion of the North, Little Mac had seven hours of daylight to fall upon Lee's divided army and beat it in detail. Yet every trait we associate with his military legacy surfaced. Missed opportunity. Double and triple vision of the enemy's number. Doubt hesitancy, and paralysis to risk. On September the 15th, his army of some 87,000 reached the banks of Antietam Creek with two hours of daylight left. Across the way, only a fraction of Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia, perhaps 18,000. Before McClellan, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, but either his intelligence failed him or his analysis of it. McClellan believed Lee had 40 to 50,000, and so the day, the opportunity passed. He repeated the same mistake the next day, and therefore gave Lee another 24 hours to dictate what was to come. On Wednesday the 17th, battle began, and for it, McClellan issued little, if any, written instructions to his officers. In truth, the Battle of Antietam or Sharpsburg proved to be his ultimate test as a tactician, for it was the only battle he planned, directed, and witnessed from start to finish. What we remember from that day? Federal command problems and officer intrigue. Conditions toxic to an army about to go into battle, and criminal to the poor common soldier who had to suffer the resulting consequences. McClellan initiated attack around 6 a.m., but later that morning, when reports reached him of the mauling of a federal division, he surrendered the rest of the battle to Lee. Never was this more obvious than at the sunken road, the middle of Lee's line. When it was pierced in early afternoon, all that was needed was an order. One more federal division, a couple of brigades, but the man who could have given that order was some two miles away from the front and a captive of doubt, of caution. Caution indeed, for though McClellan outnumbered Lee two to one, some 32 to 40,000 Union troops never fired a shot that day. The Battle of Antietam might easily serve as a microcosm for George McClellan's entire military career. A man whose intellect, Charisma and qualifications were without peer, but on the field at Antietam, missed opportunities. The failure to concentrate his army, uncoordinated and piecemeal attacks, paralysis of will, poor intelligence and analysis, loss of inner composure, a lack of commitment to finish a fight, inability to understand that campaigns and battles are fluid, that the enemy may not follow or cooperate with your plan, and when that occurred at Antietam, McClellan broke down in reason, in thinking, and therefore failed to make command decisions. For George McClellan at Antietam and throughout the war, no success was ever reinforced and no reversal was ever salvaged. That bloody day resulted in a tactical draw, 
But for the rest of his days, Little Mac believed that escaping defeat at Antietam gave him the greatest satisfaction of the war. In fact, to Ellen he wrote, Of those in whose judgment I rely, tell me that I fought the battle splendidly and that it was a masterpiece of art. The officer that told him that was a loyal lieutenant, likely blind loyalty to utter something like that, and only George McClellan would allow himself to believe it. He was born December the 3rd, 1826, to prominent Philadelphia surgical ophthalmologist Dr. George McClellan and wife Elizabeth. Simply put, he was a boy wonder. He entered Penn at 13, and though only 15 and a half, he entered West Point, where the required minimum age of 16 was waived for him. There he got along with many Southerners. One he did not. A certain cadet from Virginia he thought too rustic by the name of Thomas Jonathan Jackson. McClellan's record at the academy was stellar. In the illustrious class of 1846, he graduated second of 58, second only to Charles S. Stewart, who later served under McClellan as his captain of engineers. Upon graduation, McClellan served as a lieutenant in Winfield Scott's engineer corps. From Scott, his then six-foot-five, 250-pound field commander, McClellan gleaned the following. Careful preparation. Great attention to detail to the men and their morale. The importance of military pomp and show. And after Scott refused to attack head-on on the Mexican defenses at Vera Cruz, the hesitancy to use frontal attacks in favor of siege. Two things he must have forgotten. After dislodging an opponent, the importance of relentless pursuit, and when plans unravel, the ability to deviate from conventional wisdom. Upon the unexpected death of his father in May of 1847, he left the Mexican War and returned to the States to attend to family matters. He also returned with a lingering poison we could see some 15 years later, a thorough contempt for civilian management during wartime. He bounced around at various posts, but in May of 1853 he was ordered out west to the Cascades where he was to conduct a survey for a northern route for a transcontinental railroad. Another officer on that same mission, Ulysses S. Grant. As quartermaster for the expedition, Grant ran afoul of McClellan when he went on a drinking spree, and McClellan never forgave and never forgot. By the last week of April 1854, McClellan was back in Washington City, where, now 27, he met and fell in love with 18-year-old Ellen Marcy, whose parents delighted in McClellan's wooing. Two months later, he asked for her hand in marriage, but she said no. For one who always seemed to have the world at his command, her rejection hit him like a ton of bricks. But once again, duty called. The Secretary of War, Jefferson Davis, ordered him to the Dominican Republic where he was to survey for a possible United States naval station. He performed so well that Davis now ordered him to Europe, where he would serve as an official U.S. military observer for the Crimean War. 
There, he witnessed the carnage created by the first widespread use of rifled projectiles, and that reinforced his belief in the futility of frontal attack, reinforced his conviction in siege and supply. Upon his return, he was a member of a peacekeeping force during Bleeding Kansas, and that turmoil weighed heavily on him. Now at 30 years of age, weary of military life and profoundly disillusioned with politics and sectionalism, he resigned his commission in January of 1857. And he was immediately hired by the Illinois Central Railroad and made chief engineer of the 704-mile-long rail line. Within a year, he was vice president, living in Chicago and pulling down 5000 a year. By January of 1858, he had doubled the mileage of the Illinois Central. On several occasions, he came into contact with a man who handled several Illinois Central court cases. Though that attorney won several decisions for them, Mack was not impressed. The lawyer was too coarse, too unrefined, socially and intellectually his inferior. That attorney from Springfield, Illinois, Abraham Lincoln. Meanwhile, McClellan continued a correspondence with now 25-year-old Ellen Marcy, regarded as quite the catch. She had rejected nine proposals. Move forward to the fall of 1859 when her father, Major Randolph B. Marcy, was ordered to a post in St. Paul, Minnesota. Marcy opted to take his entire family, and as they made their way, they stopped, visited, and stayed at McClellan's Invitation, his lakefront residence in Chicago. For the train ride to Minnesota, McClellan was asked and agreed to accompany the family. There, on the train in late October of 1859, he asked Ellen to marry him, and this time she accepted. In the days before the wedding, McClellan began the habit of writing her once a day, and in them he held nothing back. Among the guests at their New York City wedding in May of 1860, Winfield Scott and future Confederate generals Joseph E. Johnston and D.H. Hill. The couple moved to Cincinnati, where he now was to be the superintendent of the Ohio and Mississippi Railroad. By his own admission, August of 1860 may have been the happiest time of his life. However, Dangerous forces, sectionalism, and threats of secession were at work. McClellan believed firmly that the two were work of fanatics. In fact, he secretly hoped that South Carolina and Massachusetts would both leave the Union. When it all fell apart, Governor William Dennison of Ohio made him a Major General of Ohio Volunteers. By May the 3rd, he was named to head the Federal Department of the Ohio. Incredibly, 11 days later, he was made a Major General of U.S. Regulars, second in rank only to General-in-Chief Winfield Scott. Immediately, McClellan sprang into action. From his office in Cincinnati, he weeded out those he thought incompetent. One such man he either intentionally avoided or ignored. On two successive days, a former U.S. Army officer seeking command visited McClellan's Cincinnati office. McClellan either dodged or refused to see him. That former officer, Ulysses S. Grant. 
Early on, McClellan tried to protect B&O Railroad bridges and, in doing so, prepared a message to citizens in western Virginia. In it, he promised that his men would protect private property and, interestingly, added that if any slave insurrection occurred, he would crush it. Up north, abolitionists took note, and they never forgot. In his first military forays, McClellan found success, thanks in large part to ineffective Confederate command. In late May of 1861, troops in his department occupied Grafton in western Virginia, and four days later routed Confederate forces from Philippi. On the 20th of June, McClellan himself took the field and did so with this communication. Soldiers, I have heard that there was danger here. I have come to place myself at your head and share it with you. The tone got their attention. So did his discipline of them as well. When he learned members of the 19th Ohio robbed the homes of several Virginia secessionists, he court-martialed the guilty parties, another act that grabbed the attention of northern abolitionists. Eager to follow up on federal gains in western Virginia, he ordered Brigadier General William Rosecrans, an officer he privately called a silly, fussy goose, He ordered Rosecrans on a flanking mission at Rich Mountain. Though the move was unsupported, it succeeded. Though the silly, fussy goose was largely responsible for the success, McClellan claimed the victory. His message in forming Washington City was classic Napoleonic prose. The annihilation of two armies. The Union victories in northwestern Virginia did come at a time when the nation starved for any good news. On July 22nd, he received a telegram. It was the day after the Union debacle at First Bull Run, and it read, Circumstances make your presence here necessary. Four days later, he was in the nation's capital and founded in a state of panic. Amidst the near chaos, he was overwhelmed by his reception, and to his wife he wrote, I find myself in a new and strange position here, President, Cabinet, General Scott, and all deferring to me. I seem to have become the power of the land. Who would have thought, when we were married, that I should so soon be called upon to save my country? At 34 years of age, he was hailed the young Napoleon. And he looked, and he acted the part. Equal to the organizational task at hand, he seemed to be everywhere. It was not uncommon for him to be in the saddle 12 hours at a time. The men saw him constantly, and when they cheered, he acknowledged them. He chatted with them. Within three days, he had raised the morale of his men, restored a defeated army's confidence, and its discipline, too. On the 2nd of August, he delivered a strategic plan to Mr. Lincoln's cabinet. To accomplish it, he needed 273,000 men and 600 guns for advances on Richmond, the Confederate capital, and New Orleans. Back with his army along the banks of the Potomac, he continued his long days. Breakfast was taken with his staff at an early hour. Then there were meetings. Inspection of troops dominated afternoons. 
Rarely was he back at his headquarters at the corner of Pennsylvania Avenue and 19th Street before 9 or 10 p.m. When he did return, there was yet another meeting with staff, followed by work before he finally retired. However, no matter how busy, he always made time to write Ellen. On the 4th of August, he, based on intelligence, believed Washington City was about to be attacked. He maintained what would soon become a broken record. He was heavily outnumbered. He needed immediate reinforcements and at whatever cost to any other operation, and he must have full control and could not be questioned on any of these matters. One man did question McClellan's belief of an impending Confederate attack. It was his superior, Winfield Scott. And that challenge prompted McClellan to write of his superior, he is a perfect imbecile. And it got worse. By the middle of August, he was reminded of his contempt for politicians and civilian management during wartime. He said so in yet another letter to his wife. I am here in a terrible place. The enemy have from three to four times my force. The president is an idiot. The old general is in his dotage. They cannot or will not see the true state of affairs. Still, in these early days, he did make innovations. But the problem was he then muddled them. He centralized intelligence gathering, but picked the wrong people to run it. He enlarged his staff, but did not give them adequately defined responsibilities. He improved artillery and cavalry branches, but did not give them tactical independence. He did, to his credit, fortify the capital. By the end of 1861, there were 48 forts and strong points and some 480 guns. On the political front, his soft stand on slavery put him at odds with some people in political power. McClellan disliked the inhumanity of slavery and wanted the gradual freedom of slaves, but not through a revolutionary civil war. In the midst of all this, on November the 1st, 1861, Winfield Scott retired, and Lincoln named McClellan the new general-in-chief. When asked if at the tender age of 34 he could handle it, McClellan responded, I can do it all. I'm not sure he fully understood what this position required. He would have to be away from the Army, a world he knew so well. He would have to have day-to-day -day contact with the 16th president, his cabinet, and powerful congressmen who held various and sundry agendas. As one might imagine, the honeymoon did not last long. He vented in letters to Ellen. He called the Secretary of State, William Seward, a meddling, officious little puppy. He called Mr. Lincoln's Secretary of the Navy, Gideon Wells, an old woman. For the man who once argued cases for the Illinois Central, President Lincoln was nothing more than a well-meaning baboon. To McClellan's patrician manner, Lincoln's coarseness was repugnant, and he absolutely detested the president's unannounced visits. It came to a head on Wednesday evening, November the 13th. Mr. Lincoln, Seward, and the president's personal secretary, John Hay, dropped by McClellan's headquarters that evening. 
The three were told the general was at a fellow officer's wedding and to please wait in a front sitting room. An hour later, McClellan arrived, was told the president, Seward, and Hay were waiting to see him. The general went upstairs without so much as a, how do you do? One half hour later, a staff officer entered the room where the party had now waited for one and a half hours and were told that the general had gone to bed. In the midst of all this, the general-in-chief and his wife did have a moment of personal joy. Ellen gave birth to a baby girl, Mary, and the two joined him in Washington City, but their happy presence was muted. Lincoln, Congress, and Northern papers all pressed, when is the Army of the Potomac, when will it advance? Its prolonged state of hibernation, if you will, prompted the powerful Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War to ask McClellan to testify before them. The meeting came December the 23rd of 1861. The committee, filled with so-called radical Republicans, itched to get at the soft war Democrat. Before them, McClellan might have diffused some of the tension, but he didn't show up. Word arrived that he was down with typhoid fever, and no one got an audience with him until January the 6th. Feeling better, he learned the president called an informal council of war for January the 12th, and he had not been invited. He showed up anyway, and let it be known that indeed he had a plan, but refused to reveal it. When those in attendance continued to push for its details, McClellan finally blurted, No general fit for command of an army will ever submit his plans to the judgment of such an assembly. There are many here entirely incompetent to pass judgment upon them. I imagine there was a silence that roared. Incredibly, though the federal commander refused to talk to his civilian government heads, McClellan, a few days later, did agree to talk to Malcolm Ives, a reporter for the New York Herald. That three-hour briefing may have constituted the biggest leak of the American Civil War. Lincoln's biggest concern with any plan was the uncovering of Washington City, and yet desperate for any movement, and at wit's end from attacks by congressmen, the press, and the public for a drive into Virginia, the 16th president on January the 27th ordered all federal armies, the Army of the Potomac in particular, to advance by February the 22nd. As the deadline neared, McClellan made ready to get troops and heavy supplies to Harper's Ferry. Pontoons were to be sent via the C&O Canal. As they neared Harper's Ferry, it was found the pontoons, on which more permanent bridges would be built, were six inches too wide to get through the canal locks. One million dollars wasted. Critics blasted yet another delay and sarcastically commented that the planned campaign died of lockjaw. February 1862 gave way to March. The Army of the Potomac had yet to budge, and then the Confederates changed the chessboard. Joseph E. Johnston moved his Confederate force south from his Manassas line back to the Rappahannock River. 
With that move, Lincoln approved a McClellan plan that would transport troops by way of the Potomac and Chesapeake down to the Virginia Peninsula created by the York and James Rivers. Though Lincoln was still supremely concerned about the safety of his capital, McClellan's army began to move March 17th, ironically the same day that Congress attempted to pass a resolution to dismiss him. Leaving the Capitol, McClellan wrote, Officially speaking, I feel very glad to get away from this sink of iniquity. McClellan himself arrived at Fort Monroe on the tip of the peninsula April the 2nd. Logistically, the campaign staggered one's imagination. Almost 400 vessels carried 121,500 men, 44 artillery batteries, 1,150 wagons, 15,600 horses and mules. As one British reporter noted, it was the stride of a giant. In front of McClellan at Yorktown, John Magruder and only 11,000 Confederates. To buy time for Joe Johnston to move his larger Confederate army down from the Rappahannock line, Magruder repeatedly bluffed. His magic and deception worked, for before Magruder's meager force, McClellan dallied for nine days. By April the 11th, enough reinforcements had arrived to swell Confederate numbers to 31,000. As Johnston put it, no one but McClellan could have hesitated to attack. Yet Little Mac, believing he faced overwhelming numbers, turned to what he knew best, siege warfare. And so there was delay and repeated requests to Washington City for more reinforcements. He wanted 40,000 men under Irvin McDowell up around Fredericksburg and the Rappahannock to join him. A wary Lincoln, afraid of Washington City's vulnerability, refused. The repeated no's convinced McClellan that the administration was out to get him. To Ellen, he wrote, If Lincoln wants to break the enemy lines, he had better come and do it himself. Meanwhile, the Confederate force continued to grow, now to 56,000. On May the 4th, the 30th day of McClellan's siege, he learned that the enemy lines in front of him were abandoned. Johnston, indeed, had retreated west up the peninsula toward Richmond. McClellan noted that the news was my brightest chaplet in history. But then he failed to pursue with any real energy. That was in part because he believed the Confederate force numbered anywhere from 100 to 120,000 men. Now, there was a rear guard clash at Williamsburg, but McClellan himself did not arrive on the field until the scrap was almost over. Yet he noted his arrival saved the day. Three more weeks passed with little or no engagement of the enemy. Finally, on May 31, 1862, he planned to strike his old friend Joe Johnston. But Johnston struck first. The Battle of Fair Oaks or Seven Pines, only some seven miles east of Richmond, was a bloody, messy little affair that accomplished little. However, it did wound Johnston and forced him to relinquish command. Across the way, McClellan contracted malaria, which sidelined him for ten days. 
while down. He learned that the Confederate Army defending Richmond was now to be commanded by Robert E. Lee. McClellan was certain Lee would be slow to act. He would be cautious. Little did he realize that at that very moment, Lee was planning to make McClellan's mind a target as much as his army. On the 25th of June, Lee began to hammer at McClellan's army for seven consecutive relentless days. In the face of Lee's seven days campaign, McClellan fell back to the east. During the fighting from June 25th to July 1st, he was never on the field for any fight. In fact, on June 30th at the Battle of Glendale, he was on board the ship Galena on the James River while his army fought for its very life. While his lieutenants did all the fighting, he pointed fingers. To the War Department, incredibly, he wrote, I have seen too many dead and wounded comrades to feel otherwise than the government has not sustained this army. If I save this army now, I tell you plainly that I owe no thanks to you or any other persons in Washington. You have done your best to sacrifice this army. In spite of the blatant insubordination, on the 8th of July, the president decided to visit. Once Lincoln returned to the Capitol, he was absolutely certain a change was necessary, and he acted. First, he stripped McClellan of his overall command of all armies. Two weeks later, Lincoln asked for a second time if Ambrose E. Burnside would take command of the Army of the Potomac. Burnside, yet again, declined. Aware that Lincoln might relieve him, the young Napoleon confessed to his wife, I am confident that he would relieve me tomorrow if he dared to do so. His cowardice alone prevents it. In Washington City, Mr. Lincoln was not done. He created a new army in central Virginia and gave its command to Westerner Major General John Pope, an officer McClellan deemed incompetent. On the 3rd of August, 1862, still steaming and inactive down on the Virginia Peninsula, the War Department ordered McClellan and his army to vacate the peninsula, return to the Rappahannock River area, and funnel troops to Pope in central Virginia. Incensed, McClellan delayed his withdrawal and therefore intentionally created a bottleneck that kept his troops from joining Pope's. It seems he wanted to make good his expectation of Pope that very badly whipped he will be and ought to be. Later, when informed of Pope's distress with Lee at the Battle of Second Bull Run or Second Manassas, McClellan blurted, leave Pope to get out of his own scrape. Yes, he wouldn't allow his men to get there in time to aid Pope, but he did find time to go to Washington City to save his silver if indeed the Confederates ransacked the Capitol. After yet another debacle at Manassas, the president now had to deal with Lee's first drive north of the Potomac River. The emergency was extreme, and it forced the president's reluctant hand to put McClellan back in command. 
As we began this presentation, we noted how McClellan repeatedly squandered opportunities before, during, and after the battle along Antietam Creek. In early October after the battle, with his army still encamped on the same battlefield, the 16th president decided to pay a visit. Walking about the encampment there in western Maryland, Lincoln turned to a friend and said, This is not the Army of the Potomac. It's McClellan's bodyguard. There, the president almost pleaded with McClellan to pursue Lee's army, which had retreated back into Virginia. And to add to the military questions, there was something else, and it was political and social. Back on September the 22nd, the president had issued his Emancipation Proclamation, but it ran directly counter to McClellan's beliefs. He simply could not abide with it. Militarily, Little Mac believed he had won a great victory at Antietam, and he believed Washington was unappreciative, and so he brooded, and so he made demands. He wanted Secretary of War Edwin Stanton removed and wrote, If I can crush him, I will, relentlessly and without remorse. Finally, finally, one month and nine days after the fight at Antietam Creek, the Army of the Potomac crossed the Potomac River into Virginia. And yet, in the first days of November, his pursuit was blocked. A wearied Abraham Lincoln decided he had to act, and he did so on November the 5th. His executive order arrived two days later in a snowstorm. McClellan was relieved of command and was to turn the army over to his former confidant, Ambrose Burnside. His friend graciously allowed McClellan to once more review the troops. On the 9th of November, they lined for three miles to see their beloved Little Mac one last time. Two days later, he was gone. Ordered to Trenton, New Jersey, he was to wait there for further orders. None ever came. In an attempt to escape the pressure of being a public figure, he moved to Orange Mountain, New Jersey. It was there he completed his final report, covering 15 months of command. It was 756 pages, and in it he, of course, attacked the administration and in his barbs included the African-American. Though he said he wished to be out of the limelight, he began to politically position himself with Northern Democrats. While he bided his time, he wrote articles, cashed in about $20,000 from his Ohio and Mississippi Railroad stock, and in June of 1864, made an address at West Point. Secretary of War Edwin Stanton learned of it, requested the names of the three committee members there that invited him to speak, and fired all three. In 1864, the Democrats nominated him as their candidate for president. A war Democrat, his platform was defined by peace Democrats, and so it was a marriage not made in heaven. He was not a politician, and remember, he hated politics and politicians. He simply could not support the Democratic peace platform, and so the handwriting was on the wall. 
On election day, electorally, he was battered by Mr. Lincoln's National Union Party 212 to 21. In that election, 154,000 soldiers voted in the field, and 78% of their vote went to re-elect Lincoln. Even within his pet, the Army of the Potomac, the vote went 70% for Lincoln. After the defeat, he said, I can imagine no combination of circumstances that will draw me into public life again. Still, as time went on and restlessness set in, he considered offering his services to either Russia's Tsar Alexander II or Maximilian in Mexico. Nothing ever developed. In late January of 1865, he left for Europe. As he did, he mused aloud that Sherman's march through Georgia would bring disaster. When he learned of Lincoln's assassination, he was genuinely sad. His extended stay in Europe lasted until September of 1868. Upon his return stateside, he became the chief engineer for New York City's Department of Docks, and soon thereafter began his own consultant engineer and accounting company. Despite his desire not to seek public office, at 50 years of age, he allowed himself to be nominated and won the governorship of New Jersey. His three-year term from 1878 to 1881 was one that emphasized conservatism and careful executive management. He reduced expenditures, cut the state debt, abolished a direct state tax, encouraged schools and local industry. After his term ended, he ventured yet again to Europe. On his return, he learned, much to his dismay, that his memoirs had been destroyed in a warehouse fire. 1884 found him working for Democratic President Grover Cleveland. McClellan wanted the Secretary of War position, but old political wounds made that an impossibility. In May of 1885, he wrote about his Peninsula campaign for Century magazine. Twenty-three years after the fact, his message was constant. It failed because of the administration. That same year, he returned to Antietam, where he addressed soldiers of both armies and was well-received. In early October, he began to suffer from severe angina pectoris. At 3 a.m. on October the 28th, 1885, he suffered a severe attack. To those who came to his side, he said simply, I feel easy now. Thank you. And he slipped away. Finally, at peace. He was only 58. The former Union General-in-Chief and commander of the Army of the Potomac was laid to rest in Trenton, New Jersey. In an obituary, a reporter noted, History will do him justice. His literary executor, William C. Prime, wanted to make sure that indeed that happened. And so, in 1887, completed and published the bio, McClellan's Own Story. Perhaps fearing the firestorm the book might cause, using many of the letters he had written to his wife, Ellen and the children left the country before its publication. Prime thought his friend 
will approve what I have done when I again meet him. Historians agree that if and when they meet, George McClellan may require divine intervention to forgive Prime for reprinting so many revealing letters he wrote to Ellen. And yet, despite all his fallacies, we, after a century and a half has passed, we still remember him. For all his military flaws, he should be credited for one thing and no question. It helped to end the American Civil War. In many respects, the army that U.S. Grant used to hammer and wear down Robert E. Lee's army in 1864 and 65 was McClellan's army. Back in 1861 and 62, McClellan administered organized, and fashioned them the, if you will, sword. And with that weapon, Ulysses S. Grant was just the man in general who knew how to wield it. For that, despite all his internal and external demons, Little Mac deserves everlasting credit. George McClellan's men loved him. Indeed, he returned that love. And perhaps that was the rub. George B. McClellan could not bring himself to do what every general in every war must do. To win battles and wars, to then win fame and everlasting glory, a general must bleed the very thing he loves. Little Mac never could. To the ranks of tapestry patrons, we with great appreciation welcome Christopher Conley. Thank you for your kind words and support. I hope you'll join us for our next installment when we recount George McClellan's last fight, a battle in September 1862 that popular historian Bruce Catton labeled as a day of sheer, unadulterated violence. Join us as we venture to a town in western Maryland Sharpsburg and wander along the banks of a bucolic stream that bears the name Antietam. Until then, I'm Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening. <laughs>